We are beginning a new series today called It Is Written. And uh, it is written as we're going to explore why you can trust the Bible, the difference between the Old and the New Covenants, the Old New Testament in your Bible, because that confuses some people, and um, how to apply it, uh, how to manage debatable things. Some of you may think, what, there are debatable things in the Bible? There are absolutely debatable things in the Bible. In fact, the whole book of Romans 14 is dedicated to helping us understand how to manage differences of opinion when we approach Scripture and those kind of things. So we're going to talk about uh, all that through this series. And, um, and, I, and I hope you'll get, begin to kind of get a Bible study action plan, a reading plan, something for this year to start and begin your life in the Word of God. But I want to open up this time, and I want to begin to talk to you to, about today's message, about why you can trust the Bible. My daughter Jessica uh, and I were driving down the road to go to Ephrata High School back when we lived in Ephrata. We came to this particular stop sign, and I don't know how much she had been working up the guts to tell me this, or she was just kind of bold about it. But she just looked at me and said, Dad, I don't know if I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. She's 16 years old. And, and, and at that moment, as a dad, you know how many know you as a parent don't want to hear your kids say stuff like that? <laughs> Pastors don't want to hear their kids say they don't believe in the Bible. You're like, hey, you're not helping my cause, kid. You know what I'm saying? But I knew it wasn't about me. It was about her. It was about her relationship. And as the pastor of Lifeway Church, maybe you come to church here, you go to church somewhere else, or maybe you're here today as a skeptic, but a friend of someone who regularly attends here, and, and you're here today, and maybe you wrestle with the same thing. What had been happening to her, and what happens to a lot of us, is we rub elbows with, with the world and other perspectives or things we read online, and, and we only get part of the story, so we don't get to hear the rest of the story. And she was going to class in this study hall, and there was these two atheists there that would take their talking points from their Bible. What, atheists have a Bible? Yeah, Richard Dawkins, the God delusion. That seems to be their Bible. So, and they would, they would feed her this stuff, and it began to challenge her faith. And I just said to her, Jessica, if God is God, he can handle scrutiny. It's not, it, it, he's okay. He can manage this. But I said, what's most important is that, and what I want to say to you today is that maybe you're struggling with the same question, the same ideas in your heart. Is, is this legit? Is God real? Can I trust this thing, this Bible that talks about him? Why, why should I trust it? And why does it have authority? And why do Christians think all this kind of stuff? Maybe you're there. I wanna give you permission through this series to work through, it's okay to, to have questions that God is not intimidated. In fact, I think God loves it when we get real. And remove falsehood because the Christian faith is not the kind of faith where you can fake it till you make it because you won't make it that way. It's not fake it. It's have faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And so you need to know uh, that that's reliable. And so we're going we're gonna to do that. If you're facing those challenges, I want to answer one large question today. Why should I trust the Bible? Why should I trust the Bible? And by Bible, when you hear me say Bible or the word scriptures, I'm talking about both of those interchangeably. Whether we're talking about the Bible or we're talking about the scriptures, I'm talking about the same thing. So when you see it, you see scriptures, hear Bible. When you hear Bible, hear scriptures, one and the same. And so I'm gonna jump right in here and I wanna, I wanna tell you why I trust the Bible and why the apostles trusted the Bible. And the first reason to trust the Bible is the Bible, I trust the Bible because it's reliable. I trust the Bible because it's reliable. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 through 17, someone else who trusted the Bible, a guy named the Apostle Paul wrote this, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus." 
So the first thing the scriptures do is they just help us to come to know God and to be saved. Uh, and I'll explain that a little more in a minute. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means God, God moved upon people. I'm not gonna, I'll, maybe in another message in this series, I'll get to the whole how the Bible came to be uh, at a practical level. But I don't want to do that in this message. The first message, I just want to help you understand the, what the apostles and Jesus believed about the scriptures, that it was given by inspiration of God. God inspired it. Not, not cool thinking. And, and it's profitable for doctrine. So it's, in, it's inspired by God and it's profitable for doctrine. That means the, the training we need for life, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, how to live right, that the man or woman of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I suppose a person could be a Christian and then not really connect with the scriptures. Let's say like in China where they get born again, but many of them don't have Bibles. Can they have a relationship with God without a Bible? I believe they can. And I believe the Bible holds that out. Will they be complete? Probably not. Will they be complete in Jesus? Yes. But will they grow and mature to the full maturity that they could? I don't know. I mean, according to this, if the apostle Paul thought it important to tell his disciple Timothy to, to, to give himself to this, and there's other passages where he does that, because his intention is that we would be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here's the question. Are the scriptures profitable and helpful? If he says they're given by inspiration for God and they're profitable and helpful, he says that for them to be helpful, I'm gonna tell you one thing, they can't be. They can't be made up inventions of man. It's not helpful if it's a fairy tale. They're not helpful if they're lies. They cannot thoroughly equip me for every good work and make me uh, complete if they're fabricated. They're not reliable if they did not actually come from God. In fact, they're deceptive and we should run from them. If they didn't come from God, but they purport to come from God, then they're deceptive and we should run from them. But I don't believe that. I believe they do come from God. Why? Why do you believe that? Why did the Apostle Paul believe that? So I'm gonna answer that question and I'm gonna separate it into two conversations. The first is for the Christian. I'm gonna address people who follow Jesus and, and, and uh, why I trust them and why you should trust them. Then I wanna to talk to the skeptic. So skeptics, if you say, I'm not, I'm not into this or I'm not a Jesus person, just put that on pause for a minute, we'll get there. For the Christian, here's the simple reason that we should believe it. Because Jesus and the apostles did. Let me help you there. If you call Jesus Lord as a Christian, and Jesus trusted the scriptures, who are you not to? If you don't trust, if you can't trust that Jesus knew what he was talking about, trusting the scriptures, why would you trust him at all for your salvation? If he trusted that which was not true or was fabricated, how do you know he's legit? Are you disturbed yet? Look at what Jesus did when he was tempted by the devil. Matthew chapter four, verse one through 11. Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Some of you have started, you're on day one of your fast and you're ready to do this here with Lifeway Church and you're like, man, I get that. 40 days? Yeah, I'd be ready to eat my arm off. The tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered and listen to what he says. It is written, where is it written? The scriptures, the Bible. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He'll command his angels concerning you and they'll lift you up with their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. How many know it's a bad day when the devil starts quoting scriptures to you? It is also written, Jesus said in response to him, because I don't obey devils quoting scriptures. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And, and the devil says to him, all this I'll give to you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and, him, him, and serve him only. And the devil left him and angels came and attended him. You know, when I was in the uh, Gateway House of Prayer, different times we'd have prayer meetings and we'd pray for people of various religions and other things because we care. And, and, when, and one group of people, all, on Halloween, we would often have these all-night prayer meetings, and I would lead us to pray for people who were caught up in the occult at various levels, whether witchcraft, practicing uh, uh, witchcraft or, or, or uh, Wiccan, Wicca as a religion, and the Wiccan practitioners, we'd pray for them and, and other religions. And some of you may think, well, who are you to want to pray for people to be converted? Well, I guess, I guess here's my thoughts on that. If, we, if, we, if you want to live and let live, what it says is if I, if, I, if I let everybody just do what they want and do what's right in their own eyes, we're basically declaring there is nothing that's true. It's only true to you. And we'll get to that at the very end of the message. But we've been praying that way. And on November 1st, this young lady decided to come in. She a, was a Wiccan practitioner, had no idea. She just randomly came to Gateway. I don't know what she was thinking she was doing there, but she walked in during our Tuesday night worship service right about 7 p.m. The worship team had been going for about an hour. All of a sudden, the presence of God hits her when she tries to come in like the equivalent of those doors there. She never made it in. She was knocked down by the power of God outside in the lobby, begins to convulse like crazy as her demons went nuts. She's rolling back her eyes, speaking in some kind of crazy demonic language and stuff. And of course, by everybody, it's, it's seven o'clock. For us at Gateway, that was our main event. That was our main, so it'd be like Sunday morning. Everybody's coming in, stepping around this girl and, and the people that are trying to help her there. It's a freaky situation. And when I came up, and we pray for people like that, and we see them set free. When I was in Cambodia, I saw this. When I was in Vietnam, I saw this. When I was in South America, I saw this. So if you're in the United States and we don't see that stuff, I'm telling you, it's there. When you open up yourself to demonic powers, you're going to experience that. And so she's frothing around, and I'm like, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And, and, and she gets free. So here's my point. When I appeal to authority... I appeal to the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. But I want you to know what Jesus does when he's taking on the demon of demons. He doesn't say, in my name, away from me, Satan. He started with, it is written. It is written. It's Psalm, I think it's 138, says, you've magnified, you've magnified your word above your name. He literally did it right there. He didn't appeal to his authority as the son of God. He appealed to the word of God. Amen. Newsflash, if Jesus appeals to the word of God, maybe we should too. And this is the calling. And as I enter 2020 here, and as we come into this time, I want to build my life on the word of God, on the foundation of his word, because that's what Jesus did. And I'm a Christian the Christ part of that means the, the in part of that means I follow the first part of that. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Why? I'm a Christian. But what about that cool intellectual argument that they come hit me with? I don't care. 
On the day of the Lord, their argument's going to mean nothing. His eyes are going to shine like a blaze of fire. His face is going to burn like the sun in its strength. They will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and they'll say, you know, I really didn't believe in that book, and he's going to go, depart from me. I never knew you. Do you care what they think on that day? No, you won't care. What will matter to you on that day is that you are an actual follower Not in name only, but in the practice of your life. We'll get to that. We all fail at that, by the way. There's a ton of grace. But it starts with something. He's right about everything, and I'm not. That's where I start my life, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus' obedience hinged on, that, on what the Scripture said. Let me ask you a question. Does ours? And if you believe Jesus is God in the flesh, then of necessity you need to believe the things he believes. So when someone comes to me, there's groups of people out there, they love to, they're trying to combine uh, evolutionary thinking and, and, and the Bible. And, and I, I'm all, I, I get science, more and more science proves the Bible, doesn't disprove it. But if you want to get into what actual science is, it should be reproducible. It's hard to do that over uh, 14 million or whatever the new number is, 40 billion or however many years. And there's this idea that Noah's Ark wasn't, there's no way that could be real, it's a figurative story, except that Jesus and the apostles referred to Noah's Ark as history in their teachings. Not as a figurative fairy tale, but as history. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. He referred to days of Noah, not fable of Noah. And I could do this, I mean, I could do this other things. How about uh, people look at Adam and Eve and they'll say Adam and Eve were just kind of a symbolic idea of the beginning of humanity, that they weren't in fact two actual humans, except that Jesus referred to marriage and talking about divorce referenced specifically Adam and Eve and how when God joined them together, let no one put them apart. He was referring to them as history. I have to believe. I don't get a right as a Christian, okay? Not talking to you skeptics, Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, we have no right as a follower, as one we call Lord, to dispute with him over history. I wasn't there. I'm just gonna go with that. Second Peter 3.15, talking about the New Testament, Peter says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with you, with wisdom that God gave him, and he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. And listen to this. Tell me if you feel this way. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Have you ever been there? Anybody actually read this book? And you're like, some of you said, yeah, I started reading it. I gave up after the first five sentences I didn't understand. I was done. But what ignorant and unstable people distort those things. Listen to what he says. Because he's elevating Paul's writings to scripture as they do other scriptures. So people wonder, there's a group of, of people uh, that, that embrace this idea of, uh, they call themselves the red letter Christians. And the idea is that I don't need to embrace any other teachings than what Jesus said. Sermon on the Mount, letters in red in your Bible, if you've got a, still have a paper Bible. And, uh, and that's all we need to follow, that I don't need to obey the apostles. They, they're irrelevant. They were just men like me. Well, they were just men like you, but the whole Bible's written by just men. The difference is they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes when we're getting moved to disagree with them, we're not being moved by the Holy Spirit. We're being moved by some self-centered desire that doesn't want to honor God. So we're trying to contrive reasons why we don't need to do that thing. And so people will try to disregard Paul and disregard Peter. Peter called Paul's writings scripture. You know, Jesus went out of his way to knock Paul the apostle off his horse, blind him, 
convince him that he is the Lord Jesus Christ and send him. And the guy wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. Be called the New Testament. If I send Pastor Vern, so Pastor Vern, raise your hand. Mark, raise your hand. If I said Pastor Vern's office is next to me, if I, Pastor Vern's in my office, hey, would you run down the hallway, run to the off front of the office, tell Mark uh, to post this certain thing on social media. Mark's our communications director. And, and Mark says to Vern after I send him, Vern runs down there, Mark, Jimmy told me to tell you, you need to do this and, and post this thing on social media. Mark says, no way, I'm not doing it unless I hear it from Jimmy myself. How do you, how do you think I'm gonna feel about that? <laughs> Mark, it sounds like you'd like a new job somewhere. Right? Why, why would I be bothered? Because I commissioned and sent Vern as my delegated representative to represent me to Mark, represent, represent me to Mark and share my heart. And if Mark rejects it, how do I feel about that? You can't anymore reject the apostle Paul or Peter and, and, his, and the disciples and not also in turn be rejecting Jesus himself. I'm going to trust the silence is very deep, reflective thought. Or you're bored out of your mind, one or the other. <laughs> so I, I, for me, I, I really simply follow. I, here's the bottom line. Christian, if you're honest, I don't follow, I don't believe in the scriptures I don't believe in Jesus because of the scriptures. I believe in the scriptures because of Jesus. If I had never encountered Jesus Christ, I would treat that book like another myth mythological class that I took in college. Are you following me? And even the Israelites, the reason they believed in the Old Testament scriptures is because Moses and all of them encountered a God of whirling tornado fire on a mountain at Mount Sinai. Their, in other words, their confidence in the scriptures started with an experience with God, not with the Bible. And I'm saying that to some of you Christians who think, why don't these people just get it? They just need to believe the word. Friend, they need to experience Jesus. They will believe the word if they do. For the skeptic, though, maybe you have it. This Jesus thing is kind of new to you, or you've been around it, but you don't like it, or whatever. Why should, why should, why should you trust the Scriptures? Well, I want to talk to you for a minute about the reliability of the New Testament. How many of you ever been in a school when you were uh, younger, and you played this kind of down-the-line thing? A teacher would go whisper, whisper in the ear of one student, tell him a statement, like, uh, you know, the frog is green. And then they go around and after 20 students later or whatever by the front of the class, the last student says, you know, if it was the, if it was the frog is green, now we're saying the dog is purple. Yeah, everybody ever played that game? It always ends up that way. Somebody screws it up, somebody mumbles something. And, and for the skeptics of, of the New Testament, of the accuracy of the Bible being handed down, how does this parts of it being six, seven, eight thousand, ten thousand years old all the way to 2,000 years old with the New Testament, how, how can I trust this? It's kind of a valid argument when you think about it, because we already know if I, if I can't make it past 20 people in a classroom, how's that working over 6,000 years? And so the analogy has been used concerning the Bible. Did the message change? How could human scribes not mess it up? Well, there's a, there's a sector of education or training called textual criticism. This is the moment I'm begging all of you not to fall asleep, check out, or do anything weird right now. Tell your eyeballs, this is going to be really good when he gets to the point. But I got to set it up. Does that make sense? Just get to the point already. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. But you got to hear this part first. 
there's this, like, he's gonna tell me about some college class that's boring. You're not wrong, I wouldn't wanna be this guy. There's somebody whose job this is. But there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's people called textual critics and their job is to study language and their job is to study the, to take historical writings and to verify the accuracy. So if we say in the Bible, something was written by the apostle Peter, there were many books in the Bible that were dismissed because textual critics said, now nah, I'm looking at this style of writing here. There is no way that's the same person. This person writes in a whole different Greek style than this person, that kind of thing. Are you following me? So they, they do that, they do it historically, they look, they check, if they have multiple translations, they compare side by side, uh, or multiple, um, multiple copies, they compare side by side to see what's been changed, and if, if anything. And so their job is to, uh, to approve authenticity, proper attribution, reliable historical accounts. Well, there was a textual critic who lived in the 1800s. His name is F.J.A. Hort. He was an expert in Greek language. So he didn't just study the Greek language of the Bible or Greek history, or, or just biblical history, he, although he was a Christian, he, but, but he, was, he studied all of, a, a multitude of texts uh, from various history things that I'm gonna show you here in a second. But here's what he said. He said, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone among ancient prose writing. So I'm gonna put a graphic up, but I wanna, I wanna help you uh, compare the scriptures to other ancient writings from close to the same period, which are considered indisputably accurate by textual criticism scholars. And so if you look at the first column, if you guys put that, thank you. If you look at the first column under work, work is talking about the actual book. So uh, it'd be like a history book, whatever the title of that book is. So there's a book called Herodotus, Tacticus, uh, Caesar's Gaelic War, Livy's Roman history. Next to it, you have the event. The event column is telling you what time period that actual history is covering, a period of time. So if, let's say I wrote a history book of the 1970s to the current time. That's what that is for them. And so you've got these different time periods. Next to it, you have the earliest copies. What that's talking about is you have the time period, but then next to that time period, you have how far from the original event, the, the, the most recent copy, the oldest copy we have is. That's the, so for Herodotus, the oldest copy is 900 AD. It's 1,300 years after the event, yet close enough to the event that it's meaningful to uh, to believe to be accurate. There was only eight copies, but yet textual critics will say that is absolutely history, no, indisputable. Tact, uh, Tacticus, same thing. 11, so you got uh, the, the, the earliest copy was 1100 AD. Time span was about a, a, a thousand years after the event. 20 copies, indisputably accurate. Same thing with Caesar's Gaelic War, 950 years after the event. Um, nine, to, nine to 10 copies, indisputably accurate. Livy's Roman history, 900 years, 20 copies. Um, indisputably accurate. Now look at the New Testament. The New Testament covers a period of, of, of looks like about 60 years. It's got uh, the, the oldest parts of the New Testament, because remember, it's a bunch of letters compiled together. 130 AD uh, is the, the oldest one, and then the full record of that copy was 350 AD. So we are close to 30 years from the event. The oldest one's 310, so the oldest one is still three times closer to the event than any other history they consider absolutely, indisputably accurate. But check out the copies. 
Forget 20, 5,000 Greek copies, 10,000 Latin copies, 9,300 other languages. And when they compare them, there's no significant difference. It'd be like the difference of me speaking English and someone interpreting it into Spanish right now. And the difference between English and Spanish would be the only difference, but the meaning was not significantly changed. That's why he said it stands alone and above every other writing. Let me ask you a question. Why do you believe in any history at all? Why do you believe in history at all? Because someone told you, right? So I believe George Washington had wooden teeth because somebody told me he did. I didn't, go, I didn't even go to a museum and see those teeth on display. You know what I'm saying? I believe he chopped down a cherry tree, but that's probably another thing. I believe Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Why? Because somebody told me that I wasn't there. If you believe in any history at all, you have about a thousand times more reason to believe the Bible than any of the other historical works there. Now, I'm going to tell you where another thing uh, uh, skeptics get messed up, and I totally get this one I really get, because I'm, I'm a very literal, I'm a, I'm a scientifically minded kind of guy, naturally. I try to avoid that in most of my messages to not tear you up and watch, not watch you fall asleep out here, because it's really painful for me to watch that, but anyway... <laughs> But uh, where a lot of people get messed up is expressions and pictures that are talked about in the Bible. Let me give you an example. And I shall move from the four corners of the earth, or I will station my angels at the four corners of the earth, and they shall come out. And, and so they get this four corners thing, and like, see? And biblical people, they were dumb. They thought the earth was flat or whatever. And we're like, no, no. The, even Psalms, David says, God stands above the circle of the earth. Like, we, we, they knew, the, they knew, in, the, they knew in, in, you know, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years ago, the earth was round. That wasn't an issue. The, what, but when they say the four corners of the earth, they're just saying it in places like the Psalms, when you see figurative language. They're saying it in places like uh, the prophecies. And understand, they would use figurative or strong language to create a picture, not necessarily to, to elaborate some specific kind of truth. And so it takes, we're going to learn the rest of this series how to understand the difference between something that's figurative and something that's literal. A lot of it has to understand with what kind of book you're reading at the moment. But let me give you a way you, so you get this. If I say, so you're in a conversation with somebody that says, oh, dude, you should have been there, man. He so rolled her under the bus. Okay, he did not literally roll her under the bus. He would be arrested. He would be in jail for attempted murder or murder, right? Or you're watching a presidential debate and you hear them and you go, oh, oh, this person, he destroyed that person in the debate. No, that means to totally annihilate and kill somebody and remove them from the planet. He definitely did not totally destroy them. What we mean is, man, he really beat them bad, right? We use figurative language, so don't be surprised that cultures from the, since the beginning of time have had figures of speech to make points that, that are hit solid. Does that make sense? All right. And so that's the first reason I believe. I believe the Bible is reliable. The second thing is I believe the Bible, and I believe the apostles believe this, that the Bible is supernatural. And this is really important because if I say the Bible is given by inspiration of God, then by nature I'm saying it's a supernatural book. How can you know if the scriptures were given by inspiration of God? Did God actually speak to men? Well, one way we can know is through fulfilled prophecy. Prophecy is if I were to speak something and I said, in Lebanon City, you're going to see a building emerge out of the ground. A mountain shall come forth. It shall be a thousand feet tall. It will happen by the end of 2020. If that doesn't happen, I'm a false prophet. Right, I'm a false prophet. If it happens, I'm a what? You're scared to death of me. That's what you are. Uh, so we have a mountain and kill all our buildings and all that stuff. Anyway, you get the idea. So prophecy, there were, there were uh, 100 
there were, there were, there were multiple, uh, more, than, more than 108 Messianic prophecies. But Jesus Christ, when he came, fulfilled 108 Messianic prophecies. But that may not feel supernatural to you, so let me help you wrap your mind around that. There was a man... And by the way, so, so there was a, I'm going to tell you about a man who has this great analogy. Before I get there, I want to tell you who this man was. His name is Peter Stoner, and he wrote a book called Science Speaks. And I like to use a remarkable illustration from it to show how Bible prophecy proves that Jesus was truly God the flesh. Proves. That's strong language, right? If this doesn't prove it to you, uh, no one can help you, so I wouldn't bother going to church anymore. Uh, <laughs> Peter Stoner, Peter Stoner was chairman of the mathematics and astronomy departments at Pasadena City College. In 19, until 1953, when he moved to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. There he served as chairman of the science division. At the time he wrote this book, he was professor emeritus of science at Westmont. This guy was a scientist. You get this. He was peer-reviewed by the American Scientific Affiliation in 1981. They said the mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound. They further stated that in the opinion of the affiliation, Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. Peter Stoner's calculations on messianic prophecy, prophecies about the Jewish Messiah and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ is what I want to talk about because he did a lot of, of calculations, but the ones on the on messianic prophecy is amazing. Now, he couldn't even do it on the 108 because he couldn't come up with a probability number low enough that we would understand it. So he only did eight prophecies out of 108. Eight out of 108. Are you following that? Should I say it again? Just make sure you're awake. Eight out of 108. All right. Some of the best known prophecies and then calculated the odds that are accidental fulfillment in one person. So who could, if, you, if, you, if there was a prophecy about a man who was going to be called this Messiah, who was going to save Israel from their sins, the chances of this happening for a, a guy accidentally doing eight of those or would be, what would that be? So let me give you an example. Like Jesus going in to say that he shall come into Jerusalem lowly and riding on a donkey. And they might go, he might sit there and calculate, let's do some math. Uh, donkey was kind of a quasi you know, popular form of transportation. I mean, camels were a little more popular and then definitely people walked a lot. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna go with, I'm gonna give him a, like, he's got a one in 100 chance that maybe out of 100 people, he would, you know, maybe everybody was riding donkeys that day. I don't know. It was the new car. Um, so one in 100 chance of that. And that's really low. But now you've got to compound that with the rest of these prophecies. Like he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He might say, uh, betrayal, how common was that with money? And then 30 pieces, uh, I'm going to say one in a thousand for that one. And then I'm, I'm making up these numbers. I don't remember what it is. I got the stats of his real numbers, but he was born in, he'll be born in Bethlehem. And, uh, but he will have come from this place and do this particular thing. And then he's going to go down to Egypt and we'll calculate that. And, and then he died on a cross and, and so when it was all said and done, he calculated the odds of him accidentally fulfilling um, eight prophecies, one in 10 to the 17th power. Write the number 10, write 17 zeros after it. You could win the lottery like three times before that would happen, like accidentally three times. I mean, you bought the ticket, but outside of that, you get what I'm saying. I'm not encouraging that, by the way. Um, that's bad stewardship, people. Anyway, um, uh, and that was, listen, so that's, the, that number's one in 100 quadrillion. He knew that humans could not wrap their mind around one in 100 quadrillion, so he gave an analogy. He said, the, probably the best way I could illustrate this would be if you could take the state of Texas and lay, make it knee deep in silver dollars, because they were silver dollars back then. Silver dollars are coin about this big. 
and you take one of those coins and you put an X on it and you, it's, you just randomly drop somewhere, you fly over, you randomly drop it in the state of Texas. Then you take a man and you blindfold him and you put a parachute on him and you fly him up and he flies over said state of Texas and you let release him over the state and he dives into that state and he, he walks around blindfolded for a couple days and then randomly reaches in and pulls out. He said the chances of him pulling out that coin on the first try is the chances of one man fulfill, accidentally fulfilling eight prophecies. He fulfilled 108. There's no number for that. And the reason I say it proves it, it would already prove it at eight. But at 108, it's indisputable. That's why this mathematician believed. He was like, there's no way one guy could do that. Well, what if he, skeptics will go on to say, well, what if he, what if he tried to fulfill those prophecies? Okay, good, good point. Let me ask you a question. How do you determine where you're going to be born? And how do you determine how you're going to die? Do you realize that when Isaiah prophesied about the crucifixion of Christ and, and some of the prophecies that lay up that, crucifixion wasn't even a thing. If he was prophesying, he would have said something like this. He was going to make it up. It would have went something like, and he shall be stoned to death, death by stoning by his people. Well, that's what they would have expected, except that it wasn't his people. It was the Romans that executed him on a cross that wasn't even popular. Folks, he is who he says he was, who he said he was. Which leads me to this, and this is the most important part as it pertains to you. I believe, in the, I believe that the Bible is, is, is what it is, and I believe it's trustworthy because it works effectively in those who believe. The Bible works effectively in those who believe. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is, the, in truth, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. I want, I want you to get this here. The Bible does not work in those who don't believe. It doesn't mean it's not real. It means it doesn't work. Let me say it this way. If I had an electric transformer, and, but, I'm shield, but my hands are completely shielded in thick rubber, and I stick my hand in that transformer and grab the wire that would normally fry you to death if your hand was naked and bare, and you were barefoot on the ground, right? It's going to do nothing to me. Why? I'm shielded from its power. When you walk in unbelief towards the scriptures, you shield yourself from the very power that could transform your life. And when you approach it with faith, and the reason I know this, and the reason I trust it is not, I didn't know any of the two things I just said to you. I didn't know uh, about anything about like the, oh, the, you know, uh, textual criticism. That, that was way later for me. I didn't know anything um, uh, about the prophecies and all them being fulfilled. No, I had an experience with Jesus Christ and I had faith and that unshielded reality transformed my heart. So when I would go to the Bible, I would read stories about Moses talking to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend and my heart was touched. And I'd be like, oh, I want that. And as I pursue that, I got free from things like sexual morality and, and a, and a, and a multi-year habit of, of cigarette addiction and a party lifestyle and all the stuff that goes with that. I got freed from just lying. I would lie to people to get them to like me. You know, I got, God began to touch my heart. I had such a security enter my heart about who I am in Christ. I didn't care what anybody thought about me anymore. And some of you, that's where you're really at. It's not that the word of God has been tested and found wanting. It's that you really haven't tested it yet. And I'm gonna invite you into a season 
of allowing God to meet with you in the scriptures, that the one who can fulfill prophecy, the one who can declare when Jesus will be born and what he will do, how he will live, how he will die, and everything in between, and fulfill 108 prophecies, can fulfill every single promise, thought that he has about your life, and the reason that he made you. We really do believe you should know Christ. We really do want you to discover your purpose. I want you to know you're made with purpose, the same one that fulfilled the 108 prophecies and the rest will come when he comes to the second coming, but there won't be any textual criticism then because, uh, yeah, he's here. So he wants to do that in your life. And I want to say this, what you believe is working on you. When a person believes lies about their, their identity, their sexual identity, their, their personhood, you're, whether you are, uh, whether you think you're great and you're proud because of your faith and your own greatness, or whether you're you're you're, too, you're you're beyond, you're not humble, you're 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 destroyed on the inside because of lies you believe about your personhood. See, faith is the thing that's allowing each one of those dynamics. See, the Bible tells us in. Um, the Bible tells me in Ephesians chapter two, verse two, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, now works in the sons of disobedience. That word works means it has an effective influence or has a powerful effect on your life. You are either submitting to God or you're submitting to the devil via the spirit of the age and the lies that are taught from our education institutions to the, to the stuff we see in media. And it, there's got to be a love of the truth in us. And again, if the Bible is not reliable and it's not inspired by God, then we should run from it. But if it is, then we should run to it. And are you? He wants to meet you. He wants to meet you in that place. And faith is ultimately what flips the switch. So I want to, as, as, as the church, for the believers here, I want to say this to you. I want to call you to a simple action to value the word of God and to do something about that value. I know that when I value something, I, I order my life accordingly. I, I, I get up and I do things. You value exercise, you find a way to exercise. I know almost everyone values eating and we find a way to eat. It's amazing how we can always show up to that. If you value the word, you can begin to take in the word the same way we take in Food, it will transform your life. So if you want God's word to work on you, you need to work on it. What kind of work? Invest time in the scriptures. And when I say invest time in the scriptures, I don't mean like an hourly worker. You know, you can hire somebody who's an hourly worker and they're just there to collect a paycheck and they're putting in the time to say check so they can get paid. There's some people who come to Christ and I preach a message or some other pastor preaches a message or however an evangelist or however they do it and they preach a message and someone says yes to Jesus but they're approaching as an hourly worker. I just want into heaven. I'm not really interested in knowing God. I just don't want to go to hell. That's not what, he, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking investing time in the word in such a way that you come to know the author of the book. When I was dating Lydia and I was getting to know her, some of you know that I read her journals. The desire to read her journals was about getting to know the one who wrote the journal. But it doesn't replace the relationship, it enhances it. Are you following me? The Bible cannot replace a relationship with Jesus Christ. It can only enhance it. In fact, Jesus was so strong on this, he said to a group of people who had memorized the Bible of their day, they were called the scribes, and supposedly they could take a scroll and write out the, their portion of the Bible that they knew, and if they took that scroll and they rolled it up, supposedly you could put a nail through that scroll, and if they knew the first word that the nail went through, legend has it that they could tell you every other word it went through. I think that's a bunch of baloney. But what it does tell you is that they were, they were so knowledgeable about the word that somebody said, man, I bet those guys, if you rolled up a scroll, they could tell you, you put a nail through it. 
They, they were well known for knowing this. Why am I telling you this? Because Jesus says, good, good for knowing the Bible, but bad on you for not coming to me. He said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you'll find life and these are they which speak of me, but you're unwilling to come to me. No, you, you think you can relate to God by reading the Bible, then living however you want or, or reading the Bible and living what you think is God's will, but really what his will is, is relationship. And he's saying, you, you can't do that. You've got to come to me that you would have life. And he told them, you've never heard God at any time nor seen his form. So Bible study was not enough to hear God. You need the Holy Spirit. In fact, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, he was resurrected from the dead. He came upon some disciples. And when he found them there, one of the last acts that he did after he prayed for them, or not the road to Emmaus, but when he did the ascension into heaven, he prayed for his disciples. And the Bible says he breathed on them. Let me say it this way. He imparted his spirit to them. And the Bible tells us that he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You know what that means? They couldn't comprehend it before he did that. And that's exactly the way some of you feel. You've not walked right in your relationship with God. Then you come to the Bible trying to do it alone without him. And what he really desires is that you meet with the man Christ Jesus between the words on the page as you open it and you meditate on it. And here's the good news. There's an invitation to come there. He's inviting you there. And I don't care if you've known the Lord for a long time or you don't know him at all. This invitation stands. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. He was talking to the church when he said it. And I'm telling you today, he's knocking at the door of many of your hearts. But if you don't know him today, he wants, he's knocking, saying, will you open this door of your life, quit resisting me, and let me in. Would you stand to your feet? You know, when my children were born, whether it was Jessica, all five of my kids, and now my grandchildren, we got this beautiful little grandchild, his name's Hudson. And I could pick Hudson up, and I could hold him, and I could go, oh, buddy, you're so cute, I love you, you're awesome. I got this cute picture of him on my phone, I'll show it to you if you want, the grandpa, proud grandparent moment, you know, I'll show it to you. Of him actually smiling, some of his first smiles and his squinty little eyes, because you guess where he gets that from. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, so he's smiling, and he's, he's doing all this stuff, and, and I'll hold him, and I go, oh, buddy, you're so cute, you're so awesome. Now, how, how many people have seen a, 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 a Peanuts comics, Charlie Brown? And Charlie Brown's in class, and he talks to his teacher. And because we don't have a relationship with his teacher, what do we hear? Wah, 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 wah. That's what we hear. So, buddy, you're so cute. And what he hears is wah, 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 wah. But as he builds relationship with me, what's he going to hear? Right now, he feels the expression of love. And there's a benefit, even though, listen, even though he doesn't understand me, there is a benefit to me holding him and him being in front of my words and even though he doesn't understand what I'm saying through relationship, eventually he will. And I'm so glad that he doesn't get the opportunity to say, because I don't understand you, I'm not relating to you. But we do that so much with the Bible, don't we? I don't get it, so I'm not gonna read it. And what we miss is what brings life to a child is when their father holds the child or their mother holds the child and their grandparents, yeah, double portion anointing holds the child and says, you're beautiful, you're awesome. God has a plan for your life. He loves you so much. And they don't know what I'm saying, but they feel my heart. And some of you need to approach the Bible to do that. But listen, the only way that's going to happen is if you're actually in a relationship with the Father. The reason my daughter Jessica could grow in a relationship with me 
It's because you're in a relationship with the Father. The reason her, my grandchildren, her children can have, a, have, have get this experience of me holding their kids is because she has a relationship with me and now she's introducing that relationship to her children. Are you following this analogy? God wants you in relationship with him. And some of you, the reason you don't understand the scriptures is because you're not. And he's inviting you in today. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again because of that. You know, my, my mother-in-law, before she died, I would go uh, sit in her room sometimes and I would go in her room and she'd be watching Judge Judy. Anybody ever seen Judge Judy? Judy can be tough, yo. You know what I'm saying? But you'll get two parties that come in there. They have to agree that when they go into this trial, this public trial, that whatever she decides is final. That's part of the, the deal. And so when they come before her, which is what I know about both parties, both parties, both plaintiffs go in there, they, they believe that they are both absolutely right until Judy renders a verdict. And some of you are approaching heaven that way where you're coming before Jesus and you think, I'm a good person, I'm okay. Listen, man, it ain't about being good. It's about Jesus saying you're good. It ain't about you thinking you're good. And I bet if I followed most of you around long enough, I'd probably find your lack of goodness, right? Because if you followed me around, you'd sure see my lack of goodness. Well, you're not perfect. Nope, I need a savior. And I'm inviting you into that reality today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? If you're here today and you're saying, man, I want to enter into this possibility of experiencing Jesus Christ, going to church won't save you, hearing about Jesus won't save you, saying yes to Jesus as Lord of your life is what saves you. It's not about an hourly worker relationship. It's about wanting to know the one who died for you and rose again. If that's you today and you wanna receive the sacrifice of Christ for your sins, you don't wanna pay for that yourself, the merciful judge is ready to render a very merciful verdict over your life. If that's you today, would you raise your hand high and let me pray for you? Anybody else? I see several hands, come on. Don't hide. What are you hiding from, a living God? You're awesome. Put your hands down. Awesome, I saw the last two go up there, awesome. Um, listen. For, for those of you who know Jesus, but you've been not been running to him, or maybe you read the Bible a little bit, it's time for you to go deeper, would you agree? How about we start our year off appealing to the same authority that Jesus appealed to? It is written. Would you pray with me, Say, pray this. Say, God, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for running. Forgive me for resisting. I surrender to your leadership today. Jesus, I confess that you're Lord of my life. I ask you to fill me with the Holy Spirit, with the grace of God, and adopt me into the household of God. And as your child, I'm asking you to speak to me. And even when I don't understand, I ask that the benefits of that communication would impact my heart until I understand it as I grow in relationship with you. Breathe on my mind and give me living understanding. Open my understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give God thanks for the, I think it was like five or seven people who said yes to Jesus this morning.